Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast, where we like to explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. This is your good, uh, your good number one graduate student mental health uh, comic book podcaster, Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. Whoa, no title for Katie today. Uh, no, I just kind of took up all of our title time. How are you doing, Katie? I'm good. I'm excited because we podcasted yesterday, and we're podcasting again today. And in the summer, there's more time to do more Jedi Council stuff, and so that's been really fun. Yeah, it is really fun. Nothing like getting that good free content out there to the listeners. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's the value you just can't beat. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> so today we're going to be continuing our mini-series on myths. This is part three of what I think is going to be... I think we're going to cut it off at four mm-hmm. parts for now, and we'll maybe return to it at a later time. So to kind of recap, our first segment was about brainness with Dr. Rob Gordon. That was a good one, I thought. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, this is part four of myths, isn't it? Is it already? This is part four. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, wow. Jeez, we've, so this is part four of five of myths. So our first one was brain myths with Dr. Rob Gordon. Mm-hmm. The second one was bullying myths with Dr. Wendy Troop Gordon. The third one was mental health myths with yours truly, with the Jedi Gordon. Dr. Katie Gordon. Katie, Katie the, Gordon. There always has to be a minimum of one Gordon. One per Gordon per episode. episode. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good. It's uh, a good rule. It's Sometimes good rule two. All, right. <laughs> it's a good rule for all podcasts. Mm-hmm. Really, they should all adopt it. Um, Maybe Barbara Gordon will be on our next one. That'd be the best. We can only hope. Or Commissioner Gordon. Lots of good Gordons. There are. That's what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that uh, that one uh, is a good one. Today we're going to be covering. Um, myths related to like forensic psychology, kind of the intersection between law and psychology. Uh, so this is a topic of great interest for folks. And then I think we're going to, uh, this isn't totally set in stone yet, I don't think, but I think we're going to be wrapping up with substance abuse myths. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, yeah, part four or five. So, um, so if you have questions or anything like that about substance use, uh, drug use or abuse, or um, please feel free to tweet them at us. We'll probably tweet about it too and uh, otherwise we'll pick some of the most common ones we've come across yeah that sounds good so a lot of the myths not exclusively but a lot of the ones that we've covered so far in our mini series of myths have actually come out from a great book and i've tweeted out the link to the book and we've talked about it but just to kind of set the stage one more time a lot of this has come out of the book that's called 50 great myths of popular psychology uh, the subheading is Shattering Widespread Misconceptions About Human Behavior. And this is a book by Scott Lillianfeld, uh, Stephen Lynn, John Ruscio, and Barry uh, Beierstein? Beierstein? Beierstein is probably the I'm right I'm not way. sure. Yeah, no. Um, so it, I don't want to speak for the whole Jedi Council, but I think it's absolutely a fabulous book, and I'm sure you're on the same page. Oh, well, yeah. We probably wouldn't have been covering it so extensively. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, um, that, if you're at all interested in the things that we've been talking about, we've covered probably, when we're all said and done, maybe like eight of the 50 out of the book, and there are actually even more. Mm-hmm. It goes uh, it goes into depth of far about 50, and then there are lots more listed. Uh, it's an absolutely great book, and we've posted the link, and I'll post it again just in case you're interested in checking that out. Uh, it's worth every penny, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. He just gathers evidence to really talk about how the myth is tested and then talks about 
potential reasons why the myth persists. So, it, but it's very readable. I think it's not like kind of dense and um, using jargon and stuff like that. I was just going to say that same thing. Anytime that there is any jargon used, it's very clearly defined, and it's actually just so easily consumable. Mm-hmm. It's actually like a nice break. I'm working on my area paper right now, so I've been le- reading a lot of journal articles, mm-hmm. which is good too. Then taking a break to read this is just like oh, it's just comfortable and just you can just read it so easily and and there's so many citations too so oh, if you yeah. are interested in that research part there's tons of literature to look up so it's it's an absolutely it's a, it's almost a must have book for I anyone who's so. a fan of yeah. psychology mm-hmm. yeah so today we're going to continue by the way oh, we please. get no kickbacks for it and this isn't yeah. an ad we just really like the book we oh, yeah. probably we were lucky enough to see Lillian Feld speak mm-hmm. and um I met him did you yep. meet him afterwards and he just does important stuff, kind of calling out pseudoscience and science and making contributions in the area of antisocial personality disorder and a lot of other areas, too. We've actually, we talked about his work in identifying treatments that harm mm-hmm. people, I, um, too. In almost several episodes, we've yeah. talked about that, actually. Exactly. So, uh, but it's not an ad. It's all just because we genuinely yeah. really like his stuff and this our fans. This is just free buzz marketing yeah. for our <laughs> Dr. Scott Williams. Exactly. Who's... And, and his co-authors. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Who, in a lot of ways, probably is an indirect inspiration for the Jedi Council pro- project mm-hmm. in that his dedication and his work to sort of advance clinical psychology as a science, as well as debunk a lot of the pseudoscience and myths, is in a lot of ways exactly what we've tried to do mm-hmm. ourselves. So. And he tries to connect it with the public. Like, he writes books like this and gives talks that are accessible rather than right. keeping it only among psychologists talking amongst themselves. While also giving really great uh, science-heavy talks, too, that are more geared for scientific mm-hmm. communities. He really does have a really awesome balance, I think, mm-hmm. between engaging in and conducting really interesting and cutting-edge research while still trans... Uh, not what well, Translating, that's mm-hmm. what I'm looking for. Translating his and others' research in a really easy to understand way for others Mm -hmm. so you've heard us geek out about comics and now you've also heard us not for the first time geek out about psychologists yeah and the science of psychology that's right yeah it's it's an all-around geek show it is no geek shaming here (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad (laughs) okay let's jump into our myths so we're going to cover three myths today i'm going to just list them right here off the bat to sort of set the stage and give us a little structure the first one is going to be related to lie detection it's going to be um about Maybe specifically about polygraphs and lie detection on like an interpersonal level as well. Um, the second one is going to be that, and I think this is one that we maybe have touched on, but it's important enough to return to, is that the myth is individuals with mental illness are violent or prone to violence. The third one is that criminal profiling is something that's very useful in finding criminals or in criminal investigations. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of a, a quick recap of the myths. And then we did put out uh, um, a call on Twitter for any questions. We only got one, I think. Sometimes I get a little, I fall a little behind in our Twitter notifications. So if we missed any or if you have any questions that come up while you're listening, feel free to tweet them at us. And if we have the answer, we'll give it to you. Or we might direct you to someone who does or a location where the answer is. That's right. And also we are going to tie this like we like to do to some fictional work. And we're going to specifically talk about Silence of the Lambs, which... Very popular movie, even yeah. though, when was it 1991 that yes, it, it came was. out? just as old as me. Oh, see that? So it's... <laughs> it's my 26. twin sibling. <laughs> <laughs> and 
almost as popular as you. Yeah, I mean, it's getting close. Uh, and, and I might sprinkle in a little Criminal Minds, too. Yes. Yeah, and actually maybe a little bit of Lie to Me as okay. well. Okay. So I've got not much to offer on that, except okay. Law and Order is. Pr- I have seen Law and Order I SVU have not. and Law and Order Criminal Intent. Whoa, that's <laughs> awesome! I didn't know there were so many Law and Orders. Oh, there are many, many Law and Orders. We should have had our old guest Sam Myrie from yes. the music episode on. She's a bit of a Law and Order buff too. I know. And Darren also likes that not comic darren site mental health darren mental health darren who we probably haven't <laughs> talked about on the show yet no a great friend <laughs> and former student of katie's yes. darren carter exactly um so let's go ahead katie and jump right in on sure. the lie detection myths first so the myth as it's written in scott lillianfeld's book is the polygraph or lie detector test is an accurate means of detecting dishonesty um katie i want to ask you a question mm-hmm. have you ever told a lie never Ah, now you're lying. And you know how I could tell that? It's yeah. because I have you hooked up to a polygraph. No, I'm just kidding. Um, lying is its actually, like, Scott goes in and talks about it in mm-hmm. the book here. It's fairly common. And I think it was that, like, college students, like myself, lie in, like, one out of every three social interactions that we have. And so if you just imagine how much podcasting we do, think about how many times I've lied to you oh, on this very podcast. wow, this really changes This is things. almost the 50th episode, so that's at least like Sometimes 16 lies. Sometimes it's better to stay in myth world. <laughs> <laughs> so what we know about the polygraph, uh, maybe just to set the stage, the polygraph mm-hmm. is a machine that was specifically built to measure or detect whether or not someone is lying. And the way through which it does that is by taking physiological readings of the individual. And in a lot of ways, what it's actually doing is measuring how aroused physiologically you are. Um, And what's really cool, and one tie into the polygraph that will link us to comic books a little bit, is going to take us back to one of our favorite fictional characters, Wonder Woman. Exactly. Yeah, so the creator of Wonder Woman, who we've talked about on this podcast before, um, whose first name escapes escapes William. William Marston. William Moulton Marston. Yeah, William Marston, Moulton Marston, who created Wonder Woman, who's actually a psychologist as well, who is interested in lie detection. And he's actually sort of the forefather of the polygraph machine, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. And also translated or represented in some ways in Wonder Woman as well with the lasso of truth. Yes. So what an awesome and interesting connection right off the bat. I love that. Yeah. Um, So that's sort of where the polygraph got its beginnings, got its, where its roots sort of are. I'm talking a lot today, so feel free to interrupt No, no, that's fine. It all evens out. Oh, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, um, the polygraph, like I said, measures arousal really not super accurate at actually detecting whether or not someone is lying. Right, so the premise, right, is that when people are stressed out, their body is going to be a certain way, even if they don't portray that in what they're saying, right? Yep. And so then the idea is that this can pick that up through yep. psychophysiological, that's a big word, um, sources looking at things like pulse, mm-hmm. galvanic skin response, yep. or sweating. Mm-hmm. And am I missing anything else? I think those are the primary measures. Okay. Yep. Um, and so right off the bat, you can sort of start to pick this apart a little bit just in kind of a logical sort of interpretation of it. Katie, have you ever been in a situation where you were accused of doing something that you weren't even when you didn't do it, do that thing that you were being accused sure of? Sure have. I have as well. And that in and of itself is a stress-inducing yes. situation. So even when you get into a situation like that, you start to run into some 
some trouble where are you actually detecting some increased arousal because they're being caught in a lie or are they just nervous because they're being accused of something? Exactly. That's a very much an anxiety-provoking situation. I would say I don't have evidence to back this up, but for most people. Yeah, exactly. And I think that gets to a good point, which is some people who lie don't get nervous or anxious. And that's another part that challenges using this test is that there might be someone who is um, lying, but if they aren't getting nervous, if they aren't sweating, their heart rate isn't rising and things like that, because maybe they're someone who doesn't really care as much about lying or something like that, or under being accused, don't, you know, I'm thinking about an extreme level, someone who's like got psychopathic characteristics mm-hmm. or something, then it might, they might not show the physiological evidence mm-hmm. of lying. Yeah. Um, additionally, there are some ways in which people have sort of tried to fool polygraph uh, examinations. Like, for example, one thing that's really kind of arousing for a lot of people is to sort of grab a number like 1,132 and just continually try to subtract that by 17. So even something like that, doing that math in your head, or maybe even something like continually biting on your tongue, uh, just sort of what you're doing is sort of creating that stress in, in and of yourself. So you're creating kind of a higher baseline of arousal. I'm, I'm teaching yeah. people how to fool a polygraph well, right now. But is this okay? <laughs> it is, is this... only because it's not admissible in court because yes. of these flaws. So, And it is all spelled out in this book. Like even um, Lillian Fell talks about, kind of like we were just saying, that some people like psychopaths might be able to beat the test in high-pressure situations, um, but that the evidence for that is possibly mixed. So your tips for beating the polygraph it's some support for it, some not, but either way, it's not admissible in court. Yeah. So I say Thank it's goodness. okay. But I actually, that is a good question. And I was, a colleague pointed out to me, kind of relatedly talking about how people fake good on other types of tests, like questionnaires yep. or interviews, and how they. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And someone did point out to me that maybe we shouldn't tell the secrets behind it. But honestly, in this case, this isn't a test that is usually viewed as super valid and reliable within the criminal system. So I say, okay. Interestingly, it is interesting to point out that despite the evidence that it's not Mm -hmm. super valid, it's not admissible in court, polygraph tests are used in a number of law enforcement agencies, including the FBI and CIA, for any and all individuals who apply for positions to work with them. So it's kind of an interesting sort of situation where it was, I think the exact situation was, it was ruled to not be admissible in court, but the government sort of like... Uh, made themselves not part of that, where they could still use it for job applications, which is kind of a curious thing, isn't it? It is. So if you are interested in one of those professions, don't listen to all the stuff Brandon just said. Yeah, please <laughs> ignore everything I told you about how to fool the polygraph. No, I, uh, I suspect that... Um, well, I don't know what I suspect. I was going to say, I suspect that they might be able to catch on to maybe if you're doing those sort of things, particularly if they're giving the examination regularly enough, and there are individuals who are expressly trained to give a polygraph exam. Mm-hmm. Maybe they are kind of wise to those sort of tricks. I'm not pulling the wool over their eyes, yeah, so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else about the polygraph before we talk about just lying? I'm going to talk a little bit about detecting lying just interpersonally as well. No, I think I think that you have covered the main points, and I think that's a good idea because there is that idea, like, this is the formal machine that can detect it, and it's viewed like it's a machine, so it's kind of flawless, even though there are people 
like you said, who are trained and they're actually interpreting it. But then there are other ways that people believe lies can be detected. So, yeah, let's talk about those, right. those interpersonal ways. So, uh, Katie, I want to ask you, and mm-hmm. this is may, maybe you're not the best person to ask because you've read the same background I have. <laughs> uh, maybe before reading this or maybe before your psychological training and education, were you confident in your ability to spot or detect someone who's lying to you? Well, you're right. I'm I'm a complicated person to ask because <laughs> I'm familiar with the research on it. So, like, I feel like I have a pretty good sense, mm-hmm. but I know that most people feel like they have a pretty yeah. good sense. It's kind so, of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, so objectively... I will have to say no, even though I do subjectively feel like, yeah, I can kind of tell when people are lying. The research would tell us that you're no better than the toss of a coin. I (laughs) know that's true, and it is humbling, and yet my brain, so that I continue on in my work, tells me that I somehow have some of it figured out. So that's common for almost everyone, the, the vast majority of mm-hmm. people. And I might be remembering this wrong, but I think it's somewhere around like 80% of people are confident in their ability to detect whether or not someone is lying to them. And what we know from research is that the average person is no better than the toss of a coin, and people who have like extensive training are maybe just slightly better than them, but not in every study. In some studies. No, I think that, because honestly, when I break it down, really, when I started getting into trying to understand if people were lying was when I was working in a correctional setting, Uh when there were probably a higher rate of lies. Because I assume the college student lies that you're talking about, a lot of them are like, oh, I can't go out because I have something else to do, like... Hopefully. Something I say on the day. <laughs> I was specifically calling you out for lying to me recently about that. Um, I'm sure some of them are more like things that they've done yes. or have done or lying to their parents or whatever it is. But some of them are, they're more benign than like someone who's been accused of something and who has committed a criminal activity. Mm-hmm. So, but when I think about it more in working in that setting, the reason I think... The, the way that I approached her out a lie wasn't really reading facial expressions. It was more like looking at the evidence through the public records of the crime and, and comparing that to what they were saying or trying to find some kind of objective evidence and see if it corroborates the story that they were telling me. So it's actually not about, like, my extra special spidey sense or whatever. I know that just doesn't make any sense. But um, it was more, like, about just kind of taking the scientific approach and investigating it. And so any ability to tell if someone was lying then would be very much just by doing the work, which is kind of, when we talk about profiling, we'll get into that a little bit more. So No, I have to correct you. Okay. But, uh, spidey sense is not used to detect lies. <laughs> no, isn't it to no. tell when his web is coming or something? Uh, no, not that either. So 0 for 2. But I'm promoting Spider-Man <laughs> myths. You are. So our fourth myth for today, Spidey sense, <laughs> Is really just a sense that Peter Parker, Spider-Man, has to detect incoming sort of danger or threats. Okay. Um, but like lies? <laughs> well, I guess, I guess. That's no, getting a little existential. No. But what's really cool about Spidey Sense is it makes him, like, nigh, like, invulnerable at times because it's it's almost, it's actually, like, 
precognizant. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. But anyway. I'm about. learning along with you. No, listeners. that's okay. <laughs> um, and me, I really don't know that much about Spider-Man. That's, I, but but I have read a little thing. about a spider You don't just throw around things when you don't know what they mean. Not typically. Um, <laughs> it's really bad practice. So another, that's a really interesting, and I, I have a question for you, and I want to talk a little bit about my experience with lying as okay. well, because I think it's somewhat related to yours in my experience with working in the domestic violence program where before people would be admitted to the domestic violence group with me and I would do the intakes with them and then work with them subsequently in the group as well, I would have to go through and I would read the police report and then do the intake with them and then I would do, I don't want to call it an assessment, but it was a very mini sort of quick assessment to give to the probation officer to let Mm -hmm. them know whether or not I thought that individual was a good candidate for the program if they would get something out of it. And that was kind of a common experience for me as well, to read the uh, the acts of domestic violence that some of these individuals committed or engaged in and how that compared with the story that they told me. And it was especially interesting because a major part of the domestic violence program, and that program was an empirically backed curriculum that was developed in Duluth, uh, Minnesota, uh, is accountability and really having that person be accountable for the actions that they committed and to help them by being accountable understand the consequences of those actions. So it was something that I had to be challenging people a lot on when they would just, you know, there was a lot of the times, and it was very common for people who when they would first get there would say, well, you know, this person did this, this person did this, and it's like that very well could be the case. I'm not here to be a judge. I'm not here to argue with you. I'm here to help you kind of get accountable. So that sort of truth part, it was interesting. And I don't suspect that I was any good at telling when they were lying without the data. But it was interesting to sort of see that uh, see that kind of process in action. No, I think your point is a good one, is that either way, because police reports, of course, they we've talked about problems with eyewitnesses and (laughs) and memories and things like that on our first myth episode. So it's not like that's the the, um, gold standard of exactly what the truth is, but it it is one part of the picture along with other things when you can read what other people's perspectives were. And we know within the situation that if someone is um, involuntarily in treatment, often they're they're motivated to say things that will decrease the amount of time they have to be in treatment. Or also just knowing about the condition that people who engage in domestic violence tend to point at other people's behaviors Mm -hmm. as causing their own behavior. So that's where you kind of use your skills as a clinician and understanding the situation to get to that point. But ultimately saying, regardless of what the absolute truth with a capital Mm -hmm. T is, what we know is that... um, you're less likely to get into a similar situation if you take responsibility for what you did. And I think I like that because it's kind of saying, like, you're not calling the person a liar. I doubt mm-hmm. that would be therapeutically effective. Mm-hmm. But just dealing with the facts. We have a problem, and let's kind of work together to solve it so that it does not happen again. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, another thing that I think is mm-hmm. sort of interesting, maybe related to clinical work, and this is a question people have asked me, and I'm wondering if you've ever thought about it, is how do you handle when you suspect that people are lying to you in just a a normal therapy session, not Mm -hmm. something with that forensic twist or maybe with a population where, given the circumstances, they might be more likely or less likely to lie to you. Has anyone ever asked you that? I've been asked that before, and I don't have a great answer for it when people ask me other than I can only know or work with the information that I'm given, and I can only hope that if the person is there seeking treatment that they're being forthright with me about it. But I don't have a great answer for it. Is that something you've ever been asked or thought about? before? I have been asked about that. And so another thing that I 
do in an attempt to tell if someone's lying is considering the likelihood of the thing that they've explained. So, like, for example, I've had people who um, say that they've had really bad luck. They've been repeatedly arrested, like, the only three times they ever drove drunk, and they unfortunately got caught. Oh, and it's it's possible those are the only times, mm-hmm. but it's a little bit unlikely, especially if they're presenting it with a picture that they've had other problems with drinking. So I think that's part of where, um, you know, again, call, saying someone's a liar, that's not really therapeutically effective, but rather what you can do is just kind of ask I ask more questions if I don't think that it's true to get more information like well can you think of any other times that alcohol might have interfered Um, maybe you did have really bad luck Mm -hmm. but are there other pieces to the picture and sometimes through that I can get a fuller picture and people will start to say things Um, other times I think that even if it's not intentional lying, their perspective of the situation, that's just their perspective is literally different than how other people's perspectives would be. But, for example, using cognitive behavioral therapy, which focuses on looking at evidence for and against, I think lends itself to kind of picking away at lies. And so I feel like you said you can kind of work with what you have. Mm-hmm and try to be as non-judgmental and make things as comfortable as possible and maximize that, but understand that there are limitations. You're only going to be able to work with what the person's telling you. If there are situations where I really can't get a good picture of what's going on, I might try to talk to their partner or sibling with their permission, mm-hmm. unless they're a kid, then I'm definitely going to involve their parents to try to get other perspectives, right? And so that's been the main way that I've dealt with it. I think... Um, I can't think of any times where I've directly said you're lying unless I'm very confident in that and it yeah. seems appropriate. What about you? Uh, I, that's a good point because mm-hmm. that's a bit of a gamble. Yeah. You really should. Yeah. And I'm not telling you this because I'm, I'm just in general. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your clinical work. <laughs> <laughs> you really should be confident yeah. that you know that that's the case before you would tell a, a uh, client or a, yeah. or a, um a patient that they are lying because that could very be very damaging for the therapeutic yeah. re- uh, relationship. Yeah, but sometimes you you can know, and if oh, there's yeah. a way. Oh, so, yeah. for example, I have had clients tell me that something happened that I could verify mm-hmm. because it would have been public record. Oh, absolutely. And so, in that session, I might not say anything, but I might look into it afterwards. And again, this is. It depends. I'm not doing this with every client, right? right? I'm doing this with certain clients if part of the issue is that they're misrepresenting yes. and deceiving people. I might look into it and then the next session just say, you know, I looked into this and that's the record didn't show us. You want it? Can you help me understand this discrepancy between what you said and what I saw? And sometimes that can lead mm-hmm. to a conversation about it too without um, putting someone as much on the defensive. Yeah, no, I, I'm in the same boat too. I don't have a lot more to add to that. Uh, to what you've said, but you, you really just boils down to working with the information you have, mm-hmm. and based on the literature that we have here, being humble about mm-hmm. that. If you suspect that someone's lying, you don't have a good way of knowing without additional data. Mm-hmm. Uh, just using facial cues and are they looking at right. you or looking away from you? Um, in the Lilienfeld chapter, he talks about how specifically maybe with like people who have psychopathic features, they might be more inclined to stare you right in the eyes while right. they're lying to you. And there's a lot of people, I think, who think that if you're looking away from someone, you might be lying to them. There's also a lot of evidence, uh, not a lot, but there's certainly some research evidence showing that like 
there's like maintaining eye contact is actually like pretty draining on your cognitive mm-hmm. resources. So especially when you're thinking about something, maybe in a situation where you are being questioned, you might be likely to look away to kind of grab some more of those cognitive resources to think about a new idea or recall specific memories. Yeah, so. that's a great point. And culturally, there are different oh, I- yeah. ways that people traditionally use eye contact and then also people who are socially anxious mm-hmm. or have that kind of stuff they might just look away and so you're right it could be there could be a lot of different things going on and there seems like there's a lot of individual variability so it's interesting to study but I think right now where it's at um, it seems like some people use it but it's important to not treat it as like people can magically tell if you're lying or not unless you're Wonder Woman and you have the lasso of truth and then you can tell is the lasso of truth a magic artifact do you know it is magic that's awesome mm-hmm. So interesting. Yeah. So excited for Wonder Woman. One week away. Oh my gosh. Uh, so, have you? You haven't seen Lie to Me, the TV show. No, I haven't. Okay, it's actually probably like one of the reasons I ended up pursuing a career as a clinical hmm. psychologist. Like a lot of people, I think, who sort of get interested in some piece related to criminology. At least that's common in my experience with mm-hmm. talking to undergraduates. Is that does that ring true with oh, you as well? Oh yeah, yeah. I think that like. Um, when we talk about Silence of the Lambs, the fact that she double majored in, that Clarice Starling um, double majored in criminology and psychology, that seems to happen a lot with students and they have interest in kind of doing what she does. I would say probably about, even up to like half yeah. of the undergraduates who I've talked to or, or worked with in any capacity were interested because of some forensic mm-hmm. or clinical or criminal CSI component. or whatever yeah. they watch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't hear about Lie to Me so often, but it's been off the air for years, so mm-hmm. that might just be a product of its time. But the premise of the show is it's about Dr. Cal Whiteman, who's a clinical psychologist, mm-hmm. who's actually inspired by Dr. Paul Ekman, a real-life psychologist who studies emotion and lie detection and that sort of stuff. And so when I got into the show Lie to Me, which was very early on in my undergraduate career, like my first year at NDSU time, I think, uh, I thought it was really interesting, and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And I actually like really looked into like Paul Ekman, the psychologist mm-hmm. and researcher who the main character is based on. Oh, so the quick premise of mm-hmm. the show. It's about this clinical psychologist and he works, he owns this firm that gets hired freelance to figure out cases based on whether or not he can determine if someone's lying. Mm-hmm. And it's very dramatic uh, and not very science-backed. Mm-hmm. But it's a fun show. If nothing else, it's a fun show. Okay. And they ch- it sounds like they tried to connect it a little to Ekman's research? Yep. Okay. Yeah, The I actually think I, and I don't know this for sure, mm-hmm. but if I'm, memory serves, I think Paul Ekman was involved in the show in oh. some capacity. Yeah. Cool. Yep. And that, like you said, the main character is expressly based mm-hmm. on him. And the main character is portrayed by Tim Roth, the actor, who I'm a fan of. Yeah. So, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, Paul Ekman, uh, when I got interested in this, I actually bought one of his books, which he's written a few, and I don't remember the exact name of it, but I think it's How to Detect Lying mm-hmm. or How to Spot a Lie or one of those things. And it actually was a pretty comprehensive review of the literature online, which was pretty interesting. And that's when it became obvious to me right away from watching the show and then reading the book that, like, oh, yeah, we're not that good at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and he goes into a lot. He, he has done work on, like, micro-expressions micro of emotion. Kind of, he has this interplay between deception and emotion. Mm-hmm. And so it actually probably in some ways did lend itself to my early research on emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It, so it's kind of interesting how that those sort of interests, even when they're not 100... Like, the main character, he just watches people, and like he can pick up mm-hmm. on these subtle facial cues that let him know, 
that they're lying. And of course, that's not really the reality. But it is interesting how even something like that can lead to, well, hopefully, what will be a career in psychology. Yeah. So, <laughs> now, you know, now that you say that law and order criminal intent, there was some of that too, where it's like he looked away while he was saying oh, that, sure. or I noticed this, and the, you know, and that kind of thing. And it is, you're right, it's cool. You looked into the literature, which yeah. is right. It seems so. A lot of the time, these are based on there's some kernel of truth or mm-hmm. probabilistic thing that people's facial expressions tend to be this way when they're feeling this emotion or mm-hmm. something, but it just that's not as interesting for fictional depiction, so it just tends to get exaggerated, mm-hmm. right? And then people feel like it's a lot more, we can have more confidence in it than we really should. Yeah, absolutely. So, it's just sort of interesting. In the, in the show, like I said, if mm-hmm. nothing else, it's kind of a fun show. I don't think mm-hmm. it's on Netflix anymore. Okay. I think I looked, uh, I was going to maybe revisit it just to refresh my memory about it, but I, I didn't have time and I don't think it's on there anymore. Okay. Um, so anyway, that's about all I have to say about lie detection. To recap, polygraphs uh, invented a long time ago by the creator of Wonder Woman, a clinical psychologist, and not terribly accurate in terms of detecting deception and not admissible in a courtroom, but still used in a lot of government job applica- or interviews, and just sort of interpersonal lie detection, really not, not terribly accurate at all, a lot of the times from the average person, about as accurate as flipping a coin, I think. Anything else to add to that? That sums up. I just want to mention, because I just think it's interesting, that 67% of Americans in one survey rated the polygraph as either reliable or useful for detecting lies, though most didn't regard it as infallible. So if you thought that there was some validity to them, then you are not alone. You're in the majority. Yeah, and and unfortunately, the reality is it's just not the case. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of these myths that's perpetuated because it's comfortable. Yeah, We want to know, is there an easy, steadfast way to know that someone's lying? Uh, Can we figure out you know, for justice, and we want to catch the culprit. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, it's just not the case. And the idea that it is infallible is sort of perpetuated by a lot of movies. Exactly. Um, comedy movies like Meet the Fockers. The, mm-hmm. the, that's a funny movie, mm-hmm. uh, but I haven't seen it in a long time. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it holds up as being funny. But Well, Meet the Parents, I think, still holds up. Oh, the, I don't remember what... That might be the one with the polygraph. Or maybe all of them. I, I don't, don't remember. <laughs> but, one of them. Yeah, certainly one of them features a yeah, polygraph. Yeah, where the dad is asking a bunch of stuff. and Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's that's just one example of many, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Um, and another interesting... You know, it's just perpetuated by the media, is all I say. We're, we've gone on at length, I guess, about the polygraph. But I... And I just have to say one more thing, because this is, I'm just going to read directly from the Lanefell, but I love it so much and we already talked about it, but it's a good way to conclude, I think, on this myth. Were he still alive, William Moulton Marston might be disappointed to learn that researchers have yet to develop the psychological equivalent of Wonder Woman's magic lasso. For at least the foreseeable future, the promise of a perfect lie detector remains the stuff of science fiction and comic book fantasy. So... Future psychologists out there, if you can invent the equivalent to Wonder Woman's magic lasso, that would help a lot of people. That'd be interesting. I wonder if you could even just call it the magic lasso. I bet that DC has anyone tried to put magic on a lasso. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, okay, our next myth, which I'm certain that we've talked about, but it's so important that I think it's worth talking about Mm -hmm. again, is the idea that individuals with mental illness are violent um, or are more prone to violence. Yeah. 
this is a, another one that's perpetuated pretty strongly by popular culture, mm-hmm. particularly movies. Uh, so there's a list of movies right away in this myth in the chapter, including Friday the 13th, Misery, Summer of Sam, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Nightmare on Elm Street, Primal Fear, Cape Fear, and The Dark Knight, Psycho, and Halloween. So mm-hmm. a number of movies, and that's just a snapshot right. of, of the the um, the representation of mentally people with mental illness or mental health problems being violent in TV and movies. Yeah, that's right. It says seventy five percent of films depicting a character with a serious mental illness portray the character as physically aggressive, even homicidal, mm-hmm. and. Apparently that trend is also in news stories, so non-fictional. So 85%, according to this chapter, 85% of news stories that covered ex-psychiatric patients focused on their violent crimes. So no wonder this myth continues, right? Oh, because yeah. this it's just so prevalent. And just to compare that to the truth, to the stats that we have on actual violence, um, or more of people with serious mental illnesses, including schizophrenia, never commit violent acts. Moreover, severe mental illness probably accounts for only about 3 to 5% of all violent crimes. So there's a really big mismatch in media representation and the facts. Just to kind of compare that directly, Mm -hmm. it was uh, about 1 in 20. Uh, three to five percent of actual violent crimes. Mm-hmm. Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a significantly lower number than the media portrayal. Really. Exactly. And I think, you know, the it might be worth mentioning. People might be interested. And among people with... So as we've talked about, it is a myth because most people who have mental illnesses are never violent, right? Mm-hmm. Among those who are, it's worth talking about what particular specific things increase the risk for violence and that includes things like substance use and abuse um, people who have paranoid delusions Mm -hmm. that's another one that tends to be associated with it but I mean as this chapter points out even among psychopaths right which is something we associate with callousness and things like that even most psychopaths are nonviolent, right and so this truly is a myth and it's a hurtful myth a very hurtful myth and it very much it, i think is critical to the maintenance um for of the stigma towards mental health it, i, it I is. believe that to be i agree case. i mean 80, i'm throwing a lot of numbers i'm going to throw one more please 80% of americans believe that mentally ill people are prone to violence that's a staggering number it is yeah. it is and so it would make sense why people would want to disclose, not disclose that they have a mental health problem or even be diagnosed with something for concern of how other people would perceive them. Yeah, absolutely. It's very, it's very sad and, and especially when, so there are cases where mental illness is involved, but it seems to be that's overrepresented in the media and so people make this much stronger correlation than it actually is. And I think, and correct me if you think I'm, I'm sort of barking up the wrong tree here, I think one part of that, so we've got these violent depictions in movies, and I think a part of the news cycle might be a focus on the insanity plea yeah. in criminal cases. So I think it might be worth just to find that a little bit. Insanity is actually not a psychological term at all. Um, insane or or insanity is actually a legal term. Uh, so uh, uh, Katie and I, in an assessment in a clinical setting, we 
unless it was you know related to something legal we would never uh you know in doing a diagnostic assessment decide someone is insane that doesn't have a place right in no psychological uh um you know the psychological lexicon Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that's a legal term. And I think it gets thrown around a lot because when people try or not try, but rather when defense attorneys or in these high profile criminal criminal cases, when there's sort of this insanity plea that we know about, I think that gets a lot of media attention. And there's even this sort of misconception that people try to use that to get away with crimes that they committed knowingly. And if I'm remembering right, I'm trying to remember the specific criteria for the insanity defense. And I think it has to be that, what is it that they weren't aware? Uh, or, I don't remember. They They're, couldn't tell right from wrong. Tell, or, and I the think situation. there's one related to an, uh, an uncontrollable impulse. Mm-hmm. Like I think there's three specific ones uh, that fall under that umbrella. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not remembering them perfectly right now. Um, so, yeah, but the actual reality of those is, um, although there are some high-profile cases that have gotten attention, mm-hmm. it is not a very common thing. And what we know that for people who do end up being found not guilty or through this insanity plea, they typically end up spending, not typically, they sometimes spend as much or more time in an inpatient psychiatric hospital than they would have spent if they just went and did time in jail or prison. Yeah, I think that's a great point for... for um and highlighting that and how it, that does get confused because I've had, I think because of the media representations in my class, people have asked, are people just faking this mm-hmm. so that they can get out of it? I'm like, that doesn't happen as much as you see, but like you said, it just gets a lot of attention and that's why it's so important when you hear something to look at kind of the statistical information about it, like how common is this actually versus looking at anecdotes that, you know, news is going to pick the news is going to pick things that interest people. Um, Hollywood is going to pick things that engage people, and mm-hmm. so I think it's important to actually take a step back and question. Well, really, how common is this? And with Lilienfeld, it makes it easy because you can kind of just open up his book to that chapter. And there's almost a chapter on like every everything yeah. you could think of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's another one that I know we sort of started with the idea that individuals with mental illness are violent, but I think that insanity plea sort of yes. builds into how that myth is maintained or perpetuated. No, it does. And also, I mean, it's interesting what even counts for that. Like, many people would consider someone who has antisocial personality disorder that they have a mental health problem. They even have a diagnosis, but typically that doesn't fit that plea because the person often, it can be proven that they understood right from wrong in that situation or didn't have the the uncontrollable impulse or whatever. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, even related to people who... Um, might ex- be experiencing psychopathy, mm-hmm. uh, which of course I think people know, but is psychopathic features. That, mm-hmm. That's the term psychopathy. Is that there, I think that which idea, is not a diagnosis, but is a psychological phenomenon and subset of people with antisocial personality disorder. Yes, thank you yeah. for clarifying. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, is that they don't know right from wrong, but mm-hmm. as Lilienfeld points out, a lot of times they do understand right mm-hmm. from wrong. They, they might just not care. Right, and th- that's not to say that all people who experience psychopathy engage in violent activities or crimes. Uh, no, no. And, it, like, uh, as I mentioned, Lillian Fell said, like, most do not. It's really um, the subset that we've talked about. And things like depression and anxiety are not associated with higher risk of violence as compared to Just, the general population. Yeah, no, yeah right. Yeah, and and a, people with mental health problems are 
more likely to be much more likely to be victims than to be perpetrators. That's of very much the case. Yeah, because of some of the difficulties uh, that they experience, they mm-hmm. are in a lot of cases, unfortunately, more likely or e- more easily taken advantage of mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So, yeah, it's it's a sad state of affairs where these individuals who are struggling with mental health difficulties are being blamed for more crime mm-hmm. when they're actually the victims of more exactly. crime. Exactly. Yeah. I don't have a lot more to say about this myth. No, I just think it's important to talk about it. So. Yeah, so... Uh, I think the and challenge it. And I guess on one positive note, and maybe this is what you were gonna say. What were you gonna say? No, please go ahead. Well, Lillian Fell talk about like a beautiful mind, which was very popular, uh, depicting someone with schizophrenia who was nonviolent, and portrayals like that might help to shift beliefs a little bit about proneness to violence. Yeah, and uh, and additionally too, I just to kind of recap again and, mm-hmm. and kind of put a, a, a ribbon on this myth. Individuals with mental illness are not at higher rate for violence than other individuals. I, I, am I? I feel like I'm getting, I'm tripping up my words here. But that, that's kind of my recap. The, yeah, the majority of crimes are not committed by someone with a mental health problem. Ninety percent or so of people with mental health problems do not commit violent crimes. They're much more likely to be victims than perpetrators. And among those with mental health problems, there are very specific symptoms that tend to be associated with our specific types of things. So things like we mentioned substance use or having hallucinations or delusions of someone commanding you to do something. Thank you. That's what I was trying to say, <laughs> and I just couldn't get myself there for some reason. I was thinking and talking at the same time, and I, I just can't do that. What I was thinking about is what I was going to say is uh, Scott Linenfeld wraps up this myth really nicely, and what he says is, and this isn't verbatim, I don't have it right in front of me, is the next time you hear someone saying, oh my gosh, that person's acting insane, Maybe politely just say, oh, well, no, not really. And politely mm-hmm. correct them. And, and he says it might actually make more of a difference than uh, than you suspect. And I think that's probably true. I Yeah, I think that a lot of people who believe that it's just under... It's not out of malice. It's out of mistake and, and having things misrepresented to them. So I agree. If you can challenge that, that can be helpful. I So I have one last thing to say mm-hmm. about this myth. Uh, and it's because I get a little defensive sometimes. Okay. And uh, Dr. Lillianfeld, if you're listening to this, it's, it's not personal. <laughs> he lists the Dark Knight as a specific yes. example, which, of course, that's a perfectly reasonable example. The Joker, obviously, mm-hmm. is experiencing mental health difficulties. But I do think that there was a nice scene in the Dark Knight where the Joker takes advantage of someone who was suffering and was actually, I think, an inpatient at a a psychiatric Mm -hmm. hospital. And Harvey Dent has that person in the back of an ambulance is threatening him. And Batman says, you know, this person is someone who is vulnerable and suffering. This isn't a criminal. Just leave this guy alone. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was nice. Um, but overall, uh, it's probably... <laughs> I wondered what your response was to seeing that listed. <laughs> yeah, I can't... I don't have a good argument against it. Um, the Joker, of course, is someone who we've talked about mm-hmm. at length in the past, both like in person at talks and on this podcast, yes. so I don't need to again. He's of great interest. It was a perfectly good uh, example of many, so we don't... I mean, we can't go into every specific time right. it's been depicted, because like you pointed out, it's so prevalent. Mm-hmm. So. All right, third myth time. Criminal profiling, and probably, is this your sense too? This is the thing that when you hear the term forensic psychology said, or when I have undergraduates come to me and say, I want to be a forensic psychologist, I want to go to graduate school for forensic psychology, this is what they're talking yes, about in my opinion. I think they so. want to be a criminal profiler. Yes, very much. I want to clarify that right away. Mm-hmm. 
criminal or criminal profiling, not that. Forensic psychology is a more encompassing term than just criminal profiling. Forensic psychology is really any time where there's an intersection between the clinical psychology and the law, um, or maybe even just psychology and the law. Anytime mm-hmm. that you're having that intersection. So things like I've talked about and you've talked about, uh, like my experience working with individuals with domestic violence, or I've also assisted on like child capa- uh, or parental capacity evaluations, uh, things like that. Anything like that actually falls sort of under this forensic psychology umbrella where you're working with with the court system in any capacity, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's just important to clarify that. because That's that, a bonus myth bust. It's a bonus myth busted. Forensic <laughs> psychology means much more than just criminal yes, profile. Yes, that's a great point because it it's kind of like when you ask, well, what do you mean specifically? And mm-hmm. again, that's because this stuff is more popularly represented in reaching people. Oh, absolutely. Additionally, uh, there are not many individuals who work for the FBI working as a criminal profiler. They have a very small unit that I think, and I might be wrong, consists of like six people. This is not a common job that you can really even just apply for, I don't think. Um, the So criminal profiling is used, um, it, and it's used in, I, in a way that I don't think is totally always responsible because what we know about it is it's not totally accurate. Right. There are a lot of interesting cases uh, that... Lindley Feld outlines in his book of high, um, you know, high publicity or or highly covered crimes where there was a lot of individuals who identified as criminal profilers who went on the news and said, you know, we are looking for uh, a white male who's in his 20 to 25 years old. And a lot of the times the way they come to that information is by using base rates. Mm -hmm. And what base rates sort of tell you is who, based on the averages and the data that we have, might be the most likely person to be engaged in this behavior. And base rates, although useful and should be considered, uh, don't always tell us about the specific individual. That's right. And they also don't require expertise to interpret. Anyone can, can look Google at the them. base rates. Yep. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good thing to point out because these individuals who, are, who identify as criminal profilers do typically report some sort of expertise or maybe training or experience that uniquely qualifies them to engage in this criminal profiling activity mm-hmm. when, like sort of with the deception leakage and lie detection, they there's some mixed findings in the literature, but on average, they're about as good as like a college student right. at, at identifying who might be the person behind this crime, given the information available. Exactly. And so, you know, the, uh, for example, Lillian Felt says that 90% of serial killers are male and about 75% are white. So if you guess that the person is male or white, you have pretty good odds regardless just because of the base rate like you were talking about. But what tends to happen is looking for, and this is what happened a lot in Silence of the Lambs, you know, why is he putting the cocoon of the specific mm-hmm. thing down their throat? It's someone in transition, and they kind yeah. of link it to this and all of that. And so you get the impression that it's more than base mm-hmm. rates and that you can read their motivations. And what I think was interesting, too, about what Lillianfeld said is that um, part and his co-authors, we don't mean to give yeah, them I, I, <laughs> the other, the co-authors. Felt at all. Yes. We'll just, that's there we sort go. of been the, uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that um, a lot of the time, the things that people say, including people who are interviewed on news programs and things like that, who are profiling people, they're using these kind of um, 
ambiguous statements that could be true of a number of people and could be mean a lot of different things. So, like, the person has unresolved self-esteem problems. Like, you can't really test that That's in this not, situation, yeah. right? Could be true. It could not be true. We remember from myths on bullying, a lot of the time people, if it's a bullying situation, don't actually have low self-esteem, though some of them do. And so it becomes almost, like, not super falsifiable mm -hmm. because... If you say something like, oh, they have family issues, well, a lot of things could be interpreted as family mm -hmm. issues, and so you may not be proven wrong because you can take whatever information you get and see it that way. Now, the stuff about the race and gender and stuff like that, you can disprove. Yes. And that does, like you said, there have been some high publicity cases like that, but people tend to, one reason this is maintained is people tend to pay more attention to when people to when they hit than when they miss. Mm -hmm. And so if they're like, they called it, that's who it was, then people remember that more and that gets more publicity versus a person said, wow, they were totally wrong yeah. about that. It's sort of the, and Scott Lillingfeld includes the saying, mm -hmm. you throw enough mud at the wall and yeah. something's going to stick. Yeah. That, in addition, like you said, that's sort of related to putting out a number of ambiguous statements, almost, and well, you know, I feel bad saying this because there might be listeners who really subscribe to this, but kind of like horoscopes sometimes mm -hmm. have. Mm -hmm. And people can believe whatever they want to subscribe to. That's fine. But a lot of those statements are sort of the same thing. Barnum statements that can right. apply to anyone depending on the interpretation. Mm -hmm. uh, so throwing out as much of that ambiguous information as possible, in addition to sort of a cherry-picking or confirmation bias by the general public, has really sort of created this myth that we're really good and this is something really interesting when it's not usually like with Silence of the Lambs, which I want to say is, is a a scary and sort of graphic but really good film. It is, yeah. Uh, and oops, and uh, it's really a, a good uh, where they're having sort of the specific thing like the cocoons on the throat and the transition. Right. It's not typically things like that as much as examples like you pointed out where this person has some conflict in their life. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the other factor that's brought up in this chapter that I think is important, too, is that when people say they're experts in something, we're more likely to believe them. And so there's some evidence in here that um, if people say, well, I'm an FBI profiler, you assume right away that what they're saying, you're looking for them to be right, mm -hmm. because that's your bias, unless you're a skeptic by nature, which is fine. Mm -hmm. which, but um, a lot of people are right away going to say, well, this expert, they talk authoritatively, they must know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And also, like a lot of these myths, we want it to be true that people can have these ways to track dangerous people mm -hmm. down and that they can figure out something that's beyond just chance speculation, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's comforting to know that there's justice mm -hmm. in the world and there's a way to find these people. So Should it, I say real quick where the Barnum statements come from? Because I was oh, thinking we That's probably that. a good idea. Yeah, I, that's it, one of my classic goofs where I assume <laughs> that people have the same uh, base knowledge that I do and just talk. I do that too, so yeah. it's good that there are two of us because we can help good with that. Good catch. So it comes from uh, P.T. Barnum from the circus who said you give a little something to everybody and the idea is just like what Brandon said, that there's kind of an ambiguous statement that you can pull to mean something in your life, like in a horoscope, like something changed recently or you were fearful about something and you can kind of uh, mm. cling on to that. or Which, that. Cling on. <laughs> <laughs> Another great sci-fi reference. No, uh, and the the real nature of those statements, like Katie already pointed out, but I want to bring it up one more time, is mm -hmm. that they a lot of the times either aren't measurable or aren't falsifiable, and things that aren't measurable or falsifiable are just not scientific. Right. That's really the. the They're still market. valuable, yeah. like art, which we love oh, and right. talk about a lot of the time, but it's not. Um, 
but when you're doing something like this where it's a, it affects people and you're devoting resources to it, it's important to test and know that it's helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. So anything else about criminal profiling before we move on to our one Twitter question that we don't have a good answer for? <laughs> no. I don't know if there's anything else that we want to talk about from Silence of the Lambs, but I think related, not particularly related to criminal profiling, but I wonder if part of why it is so popular is because she, Clarice is just a badass like she's awesome she experiences sexism and they make that clear and she doesn't really tolerate that and she's obviously very caring and compassionate but she's also not afraid and she's seeking justice so I get why people would see someone like that and be like I want to be like her and so I thought that was a big strength of the movie I kind of forgot that because I hadn't seen it in a while and I was like yeah she is a really great character super awesome Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah, really perseveres in the face of some of that adversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the specific scene, there's multiple instances of that. Mm-hmm. But the specific one that really was powerful for me was after they're talking to sort of this stereotypical small town sheriff mm-hmm. and her supervisor uh, doesn't really allow her to be part of it. And she sort of calls, or no, he brings it up to her in the car ride back. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry I did that. You know, I just, that's kind of part of building the rapport with them is that, you know, women aren't included in the conversation. And, she says to him, yeah, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course, I get it, but that, ma- you know, that matters. Mm-hmm. People look to you for guidance on how they should handle the situations. So that you did that, that matters. And I thought that was really good. And I like, like that, really too. progressive for 1991. I, I mean, I don't know. I was just being born, so I don't know. I don't you have don't good, remember? Good you don't sense. have a good sense of the climate, the <laughs> no. general climate? I don't remember that was that your well. first question. Yeah, please. <laughs> I, you know, I, I thought that was great. And then, you know, it shows some of the more explicit stuff, too, like the administrator of the hospital asking her out when she's oh, there yeah. to do her work and stuff like that. Um, I think he directly tells her she's attractive. Yeah. He didn't expect someone attractive or something along. And those he's lines. asking if she's going to be staying overnight yeah. or something, and that, and they're talking about how like Lecter might like her because she's his taste, you know. Mm-hmm. Which of course is kind of a gross joke because he's yeah. uh, cannibal. But you know, the other thing I was thinking, he's the one doing most of the supposed profiling anyway, right? She's just talking to. He's the one who's giving the identifying information, which yeah. is the whole purpose of it. It's not. She plays. And a very important role, but in terms of like the typical the typical profile information, it seems like he's mostly the one getting that stuff, right? Yeah, you kind of get the sense that he's like uh, top one percent sort of right. I actually I don't even want to say he's a top one percent psychologist. Yeah, or he's a psychiatrist. I think right. that's the term they use um, because he has like sort of like sometimes omnipresent. Uh, sort of uh, conclusions that he makes about people yeah. that are just sort of outside of the realm of reality for people who mm-hmm. engage in psychotherapy, yeah. in my opinion. I, oh, yeah, yeah. And um, he violates some ethics, I think. Well, he eats someone's face. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he does so, violate I, some specific uh, psychological <laughs> ethics, but also just, like, general human <laughs> ethics as well. I had forgotten how graphic that movie was. Yeah, it didn't leave me with a super good feeling while I was watching that. I mean, I could appreciate how great the film is, but I was also like, wow, this is super disturbing. I need to go watch, I think I watched 30 Rock or something after. 30 Rock is good. I I remember, too, uh, because they're talking about how they don't show the picture, but Mm -hmm. when they show Clarice the picture of someone who he attacked, I'm like, yeah, he, like, ate her tongue or something. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, thank gosh (laughs) that I didn't show that. That, Or the picture. That's gross. (laughs) But then they do show him, like, chewing off someone's cheek. And I was like, oh, oh, thanks. (laughs) 
Yuckerino. So <laughs> you know, one thing that I thought, <laughs> not to change from the Yuckerino, because I do <laughs> like that. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting, too, is because I, I told you I was streaming this on Amazon. I rented it through Amazon, and um, they have fun facts, like trivia, that come up. And at first fun I was like, facts. yeah. Nothing well, fun about it. Well, there were c- occasional fun facts, like, they accidentally called this person the wrong name or a rent was dropped in the scene and they didn't cut it. Like, those were the fun ones. But then they also had some facts that I was interested in um, and I'm kind of wondering about. So the main perpetrator is someone who they refer to him as, quote-unquote, transsexual. I'm not sure, or uh, even the pronouns, I'm not sure because I don't know a lot about the person. I, I It yeah. seems like the person is maybe transgender and interesting yep. to trans into a woman, right? That's yes. the whole I premise of the getting premise. the um, getting their skin and sewing yep. together a sewing sewing together a suit uh, made of flesh, and so uh, that's all very disturbing. But as a side note, I wondered, wow, you know, speaking of myths about violence, mm-hmm. I wonder what people thought about this. And so, thanks to Amazon trivia, they um, this isn't actually trivial, but they were saying that at the time there were activists who were concerned that there, there was this um, horribly violent person who was being portrayed as, as quote-unquote transsexual, again, I, um, and as violent because there was so much prejudice around that, and mm-hmm. they worried that this was going to continue to perpetuate that. And, I mean, even now we know that people believe these things, like when they're thinking about bathrooms and stuff oh, for yeah. transgender individuals, and I can understand the concern. So I thought it was interesting in that I think they tried to address it a bit in the movie because Lecter walks back a little bit in saying that I don't actually think that that's what's going on with this person. This person had this um, traumatic background and all these things happened to them. Of course, most people had traumatic things happen to them, do not become violent either. Mm -hmm. But he was trying to, it seemed almost like they were trying to separate it from that, like maybe counter that part of the narrative and then she explicitly Clarice says though I liked it because she quotes the literature there is no correlation in the literature between transsexuals and violence and again excuse some of my terms I'm using the terms from yeah. the movies but what, the movie is old so yeah that's not a term that just to clarify yeah, which yeah. of course you know but maybe yeah. for listeners who aren't familiar with the the uh, correct terminology, transgender is the correct term yeah so I'm and you know uh, we actually have talked about bringing expert on to talk about the different terms that have been used and what they mean and things like that. But I thought it was worth mentioning this, especially on a myths episode, because I did think it was helpful that they addressed the movie. But as Brandon and I talked about, still probably the most powerful thing that people might remember is that the main perpetrator is experiencing some of these um, issues and is, is seeking... Uh, gender affirmation surgery because mm-hmm. even Dr. Lecter right, suggests find these hospitals and if it's registered there and so I do think that is a danger of perpetuating the myth of violence which we know even this many years later people have concerns about but what Clarice said is, is true the evidence is just not there that this is linked to violence and so anyway I wanted to mention that as well. No it's a good point and I, I suspect and I could be wrong this is just speculation that sort of psychology literature nerds like us might pick up on Clarice saying something like that. Like, oh, yeah, yes, that's, that's interesting. Right. That's good. As opposed to maybe the much more, um, I don't know, 
potent part of the story, right. which is the transgender individual being a serial killer and keeping people in a, a pit. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that that's obviously we're talking about like there is a more emotional uh, attention to that kind of thing than yeah. kind of the the conversation that they're having about it. And I also just want to say I I'm just speaking kind of from the terms again, like I said in the '90s um, that they used, but I probably didn't say things as eloquently or carefully as I wanted to say. So if I said something insensitively, please let me know, and I will happily correct or apologize for it in the next episode. Yeah, that's all you can do. Yeah, uh, It's it's a good... Uh, the McElroy's pointed this out, mm-hmm. the McElroy brothers, which I think it was Griffin specifically who says, you know, if someone brings something up to your attention and says, you know, you, you said something, you did something that hurt me in some way, mm-hmm. you really have two options. And the first is to sort of maybe get defensive and, and defend what you say or, or uh, deny it or something like that. And the second one is just to accept it and apologize and change it. He says, just always do the second one because, mm-hmm. I mean, what's the benefit of fighting it? So. I think that's a great way to do things. And I also want to be clear that my intention is to point out that that's another uh, misconception that, that yeah. people might have got from the movie. Again, they're just talking about one person, but sometimes people generalize from one oh, case, as we know a lot of the time. And so my especially point is a, Clarice's yeah, point. Yeah, especially <laughs> a potent or uh, yeah. extreme or violent example. Exactly. There's in my experience in my uh, research and the reading of the literature on attention and cognition related to both, or rather emotion and cognition related to attention and memory, those sort of things stick out. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, I have a meeting coming up pretty soon, so we have to cut this episode okay. <laughs> out. Any closing thoughts on our forensic psychology myth? I know, I think I'm going to put Dr. Hannibal Lecter in the title, but we didn't have as much time to talk about him as I was hoping. No, but, you know, I think that we... We could talk some more about antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy, and he would be a good example to use along with some other people uh, if people want to talk more about him. Uh, Fortunately, rare to be like he is, so that's uh, reassuring. Not a lot of cheek chewing. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a good note to end on. (laughs) Cheek chewing. Oh, gosh. See you next week. (laughs) As always, folks, thanks for listening in. Part Four out of five, I think, of our myths. We could return to the myths someday. It seems like people really enjoy mm-hmm. them, but uh, we'd want to talk about other things at some we point. we got too. other stuff that we also are excited to talk about, other comics and things that yeah. we've read in movies and stuff like that. Um, but I hope this was helpful to people. It's certainly interesting. It helped me to kind of dig into some of these things, too, and learn about it. And uh, even rewatching Silence of the Lambs, it did help me to understand kind of the influence, and again, that was, I think that started a lot of the other movies and shows that came from it because of how popular and kind of award-winning and like critically Criminal acclaimed Mimes. it was. Yeah, I plan to talk about that at length, but just no time. Oh, uh, yeah, we were out of time. About. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're already over an hour. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. As always, <laughs> folks, thank you so much for listening in. Uh, if you have any questions about myths or forensic psychology or psychology in the law, feel free to tweet them at us. If you have anything about substance abuse, myths related to that, tweet those to us as well. We've got an episode coming up. Or any myths about anything, even if it's not related to psychology. Maybe we can try to help, but maybe not. So, okay, folks, thank you so much for listening in. And I, I don't have a pearl of wisdom because I haven't been doing one for the myths segments i'm saving one for the end it's going to be like a five-part pearl of wisdom all in one i'm going to give one 
please. Katie, non-prolivalism, because I won't take that from you. But That's okay. I just want to mention one resource that I found helpful, because I think looking into things, uh, it's timely and uh, oh, time-consuming, yeah. I should say. It's it's timely as well, but it's also time-consuming. Um, Snopes.com is a, another good place where they look at evidence if, like, things that go viral on, you know, through Facebook or social media and stuff like that or other types of rumors or hoaxes. That's another place that I think they do a nice job looking at resources and kind of looking for evidence in general beyond psychology. And so I guess my suggestion would be when you hear something, use your critical thinking and look to see if it's true or not. Or tweet at us and we'll help. Yeah. The best that we can. I'll send you the link to Snopes. (laughs) (laughs) So helpful. Okay. That sounds good. Uh, thank you so much for listening, folks, and you, you'll you hear us next week. The, the new sign-off. <laughs> that might be the new sign-off. Okay. You'll hear us next week. I like it. Because it sort of implies that people will listen again, That's which makes true. me feel good. Okay. <laughs>